It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in again today because we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We took a bit of a break there over Christmas and into the new year. And it's a, it was a, a great time to really just reflect on who is Jesus, to understand God with us, to understand who is Jesus, the 355 prophecies that pointed to his coming and the many more prophecies that point towards his second coming and really to, to set the, the new year straight, I believe, just to start us off right on the, the right uh, message, I believe, uh, just talking about who Jesus is. And here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're, we're continuing in that study. If you recall, a few weeks back, we, we were really uh, just getting into the the subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage, and we had just spent a number of weeks on this topic as we were going through 1 Corinthians 6 and into chapter 7. If you've missed any of those and you just need a refresher on that, please go to calvaryfountain.com. Again, calvaryfountain.com, and there, there's a little drop-down for audio and video, and there's a radio and podcast button you can click there and listen to the previous programs, and I believe that you'll be encouraged and blessed by going back to those. Even if you listen to them, maybe you just need a little refresher there, and, and we talked about what intimacy before God looks like, a healthy intimacy between a husband and wife, what honors God, what does not Yes, the Bible is very specific on those issues, and so I think we need to understand what honors God in these things. So here we are. We're going to continue into chapter 7. We might only get through verse 9 today, uh, but we'll see how far we can get through. Again, the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, as I'm, I'm talking to you, I don't know what category you're in, but I suspect that some of you are single, some of you are married. The challenge, of course, is as I'm talking to the singles, many of our singles then wish they were married, and many of our married folks sometimes wish they were single. And that's one of the biggest challenges in life is to be content in our stage of life. You see, happiness is not having what you want. It's wanting what you have. And nowhere is this truer than singleness and marriage, that God's desire and expectation is that you and I would be content in Christ whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And so the Apostle Paul here is is telling us and showing us what godly contentment is all about. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he wrote that he had learned to be content in any circumstance. And amazingly, he penned those words while he was in a Roman prison. And so Paul could say he was content in Christ even while he was suffering great hardship. So Paul allowed Jesus Christ to ultimately transform his heart and mind and to, to give him this supernatural perspective. And, and honestly, uh, we, we, we need to share Paul's perspective in this. I think that's probably a, the most difficult thing is to accept what God has done in our life and where we're at right now. Are we truly content in our either being single or being married? And if not, why not? Uh, I mean, I think that if we really examine this, are, are we seeking our own happiness 
or, or God's desire, his kingdom come, not ours. That's, uh, that's one of the most difficult things to pray as we examine what we're really asking of God. We seem to treat him like a divine genie to solve all of our dilemmas in life rather than saying, Lord, thy will be done. How can I be used to serve you as a doulos, as a bondservant to you? To, to please you. So when it comes to issues pertaining to singleness and marriage, divorce and remarriage, the question is not what will make me the happiest, but ultimately what will make God happiest. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 to 24, Paul is going to tell us that God is happy when we are content with what he's doing, right? When we release the steering wheel to him to steer, to guide, to direct, to do is he will do and be content with what he has done. Now, now of course, let me just preface this study to, to help us understand that, yes, we have probably made some mistakes along the way, maybe regrettable choices, but none of that took God by surprise. What, what you see is a number of broken people throughout Scripture whom God used even their broken choices to bring himself glory through it. And we see that even with King David and Bathsheba. Uh, yes, he had committed this adulterous affair, even killing the husband of Bathsheba. We would think that would automatically write David off from being used by God at that moment. We certainly feel like that at times when we go into a church that we just feel so dirty that we just don't belong there. And you would think, wow, look what look what God did with David. In fact, with Bathsheba, she would end up becoming the mother of the kingly line of Solomon that would come through that relationship. God could have written off the whole thing. He didn't. And so we have to accept the reality we have made mistakes, but it does not thwart the will of God. So when we accept contentment, what we realize is that God already saw the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46.10. You cannot thwart his holy will. So even with the mistakes that have been made, you are in a position right now to be wholly, fully used by God. And you have to accept things as they are right now and say, God, I want to honor you with the next step that I make, the very next word that I speak, the next thought that I have. Align my mind to be in contentment with your greater purposes and working. I'm seeking my own will far too often, and I surrender that to you. So God worked in Paul, and he's working in you and I right now. Again, what's going to make God the happiest in this? So let's let's look at some directives that Paul is giving to us here through this section. And in verses 6 to 9, as I mentioned, this may be the majority of our study here this morning, is that number one, we're told to consider marriage carefully. Uh, Paul expresses his preference that all Christians be single as he is. Now, this doesn't mean that he's against marriage. Listen to this. And he acknowledges that both marriage and singleness are viable options for the Christian. So in all probability, Paul had possibly been married even in his earlier life. You see, marriage was the norm for the young Jewish men. They were expected to marry, that they would have children to propagate the race and the faith, and they would be following Genesis 128 to be fruitful and multiply, especially as his relationship with the Sanhedrin. We see that rabbis, by and large, were expected to be married, and as we read in the book of Acts, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem before his conversion, as we read in Acts chapter 26, verse 10. And that ruling body required that all its members be married. So Paul was most likely either widowed 
Or maybe she left him when he converted to Christianity. We don't know. He doesn't speak to that issue. We can only assume based on his relationship with the Sanhedrin and how uh, devout he was to that, even going to the extent of killing Christians uh, because they saw them as a threat, as a, as a uh, you know something that was against what they knew to be true, against Judaism as a, as a whole. So it, either way, it's helpful to understand here that Paul isn't writing about marriage as some dish dispassionate theological observer. He's not this crusty old bachelor who's anti-marriage, but most likely he's comfortable writing about marriage and sexuality, both from his personal experiences, possibly having been a married man or even as a single man. So let's just read this. Uh, Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, but I say this is a concession not as a commandment. So Paul wants to make it clear here that what we're about to read through verses 7 to 9 is a concession, not a command. And the word concession means permission to do something. So Paul explains what this concession is here, verses 7 to 9. This is what we read, 1 Corinthians 7. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried... And to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You see, Paul wishes that all Christians would remain single. He'll explain later on in this chapter why. But but ultimately, a single man or woman is able to devote more of themselves wholly, fully to Christ. And we'll see that in verses 32 to 34. He'll also make it clear that his concession is based upon the present distress. He'll mention that in verse 26. So in light of these factors, Paul believes that during this specific time, it is better not to marry. Yet yet even during that time of crisis, Paul, he's a, he's a realist, and he says it's better to marry than to burn with unfulfilled sexual passion as he says in verse 9. So as we reflect on these, there's two principles that seem to rise to the surface here. First, celibacy is a spiritual gift and should be treated accordingly. In verse 7, Paul writes that each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And, And so these men and women who are able to be single, they've been gifted by the Lord to do so, just as the Lord gives many gifts to many other talents and needs that that edify the whole body. So if you are single, you should value your gift of singleness. If, If you're married, you ought to celebrate your marriage. And this is God's expressed desire for us. Yet often single people want to be married and married people want to be single. So our problem is lack of contentment. We don't value God's gifts and timings as we should. And consequently, we are always restless and seemingly dissatisfied. But it's worth recognizing that at some point in our lives, each of us will be single. And you're like, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Well, it may be before marriage or after marriage. 90% of all single Americans will eventually marry, and very few couples together will pass away. Like Trenton Dolores Weinstead of of Tennessee, they died only a few hours apart after 64 years of marriage. Most of us are going to have to accept the reality that we're probably going to end up being single for whatever period of time that might be at some point in our lives. So therefore, God's call is for us to be content in Christ whatever our circumstances. And I believe most Christians reject 
the legitimacy of singleness. If we really speak to this issue, they, they, they don't uh, highlight it or, or exemplify it as it should. It's somebody who can be set apart, consecrated unto the Lord to do the Lord's work. Uh, this is something that Paul is going to spend a great deal of time to help us understand. So directly or indirectly, subtly or not so subtly, we've ascribed to the conviction that singles are somehow unfinished business. I mean, if you hear it in private conversations, it's always that, aren't you married yet? What's a nice girl like you doing unmarried? Or what you need is a good wife. Or have you found anybody to date yet? I'm praying the Lord will lead you to a good guy. It's too bad he's not married. I mean, we hear these kind of statements all the time, whether, you know, it's just kind of the subtle backhanded thing that sometimes parents say or relatives say. I mean, at family reunions, apparently these are notorious for these type of comments. And books and articles are written from a Christian viewpoint that say, if, if you only commit your life to Christ, then God will give you a marriage partner. Well, Christ never said that. He said he will lead you to a life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment from Matthew chapter 11, chapter 16, and John chapter 10. He, he never said he would give you a marriage. We've taken Psalm 37, 4 out of context that says he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, we have to understand that's after you have learned to delight in the Lord. That's what's first and foremost in that chapter. We have to delight in the Lord. So we need to accept the legitimacy of singleness. You see, census data reveals that there are more women than men in the United States. So we need to accept singleness because there are some people whose circumstances involve singleness and they have no opportunity to change that. So others prefer not to change, and we need to accept the legitimacy of singleness primarily because the Bible does. Now, let's examine marriage. Marriage is to be encouraged, not discouraged. So we need to do so not at the expense of those who are called to be single and serve the Lord faithfully in so doing as the Apostle Paul was. So here in verse 9, Paul encourages singles to get married if they lack control and are burning. So this is a desire from God. Let's not belittle that in any way. It's not meant to be inappropriately squelched. And often I'll be asked that question, when should our young people get married? And I, I usually answer this question by explaining that the, the time of the New Testament writings and for hundreds of years afterwards, uh, marriage occurred at a young age. Now, marriage was permitted uh, because it, 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 of course, well, permitted and encouraged because it, it, of this blossoming sex drive that had to be fulfilled and not frustrated within the young people, which acts as this bonding agent between a husband and wife. I mean, we have to recognize that God has designed this desire to be a couple. And today, however, it seems that marriage is usually postponed until later in life due to modern educational, vocational, or financial pressures. And so the longer one postpones marriage past puberty, the more sexual temptations he or she naturally have to face. So they understood that there would be those pressures, those desires, and they believed that it was best to be unified early, bonded, to that individual, this bonding agent that God would give to a betrothed couple, that when they were married, these would be fulfilled together, bonded together as one. So according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 96% of Americans over the age of 20 have had sex. And premarital sex is an epidemic in the world and in the church. 
So we have to seek to protect our young people. Does that mean that young people should be married as teenagers? I'm not making a recommendation or a prescription here, but I am suggesting that young people avoid sexual temptation, not postpone marriage until after their proverbial ducks are in a row. So here's the key. If you're both spiritually ready and in a godly relationship that you are willing to commit to for the rest of your earthly life, you have the biblical freedom to marry. But don't do so without the blessing of your parents. I'll talk about that one uh, here in just a moment here. Let's see if we can get that into our time today. But uh, uh, let me balance these comments by speaking then to both parents and teens. Uh, Parents, uh, let me just address you for a moment. Apart from your child's relationship with Jesus Christ— I don't know that you may may or may not realize this, but the most important passion you can develop in your son or daughter is to be a godly husband or wife if they're considering marriage. We don't typically give this as much thought as we as we should do. We're more concerned about ensuring that our children get good grades, get into the right college, learn the right profession. However, you really want to set your child up for success, you have to prepare your child to be a godly spouse if marriage is a viable desire for them. Teach your child the responsibility and commitment to stick through even the tough stuff. Let your child know that being a godly husband or wife is a priority in marriage and demonstrate that in your own marriage. I find that we as parents are often very relaxed in this area of teaching because uh, we, we aren't demonstrating it in our own relationship with our spouse or we feel like our relationship isn't a good model for our children. So lest we sound like hypocrites, we just avoid the topic altogether. Now, now my mother married a man who wasn't a Christian, and I saw how hard she worked to be the best wife and best mother she could be despite their marital faults. And she even defended her husband when I would vent my frustration to her about his decisions. So even as a child, I could see that she was only defending him because she was trying to do the right thing and honoring God first and foremost was meant respecting her husband even when his decisions seemed to be out of alignment with what was of wisdom. So although I I couldn't receive biblical instruction from my stepfather, I watched how my mother modeled it every day. And when she gave me instruction on being a man after God's heart, I listened. She couldn't change her husband, but she had a testimony, and she still had a voice into my heart because I watched her faithful obedience to God in a very difficult situation. And I also learned by watching her pain and her tears how important it was to be equally yoked, as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And what does that mean? Waiting on the Lord. Now, to you teenagers, let me just speak to you for a moment. You you cannot use my words against your parents' wishes, okay? So even though you may be immersed in a flame of passion that's burning in your core right now, most of you may not be ready for marriage. A Christian marriage is a covenant before God that is filled with blood, sweat, and tears. It's not something to be entered into lightly. So if you want to get married soon or in the near future, I would suggest that you work feverishly on your relationship with Christ and prioritize your purity. You'll notice that in Ephesians chapter 5, there's a model for a successful marriage there. If each step is applied in sequential order, you'll see something very beautiful revealed on on how to have a successful marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, it tells us to walk in love 
and to be imitators of God. And then we're told to be pure. That's number one. Walk in love. This is agape love and to imitate God. Then we're told to be pure. You got that? Number two is in Ephesians 5, 8 to 14. He tells us to walk in the light and to avoid the works of darkness. Then we're told to seek out what's acceptable to the Lord. So you see the formula here. Walk in love, imitate God, be pure, walk in the light, avoid darkness, and seek out what's acceptable before the Lord. Then number three, we're told here in Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, he tells us to seek wisdom and to understand what the will of the Lord is, giving thanks to God and walking in reverent fear before God. Wow. Okay, so these are our three first steps that we're to take, and there's a lot in those from Ephesians chapter 5, 1 to 21. It's all about our walk with God first and foremost. Then, in verses 22 to 33, then he tells us how to have a marriage that honors God. So you see, we have to put our walk with God in proper order. It must come first. You have to put God above all else as he is refining you, transforming how you think, how you act, how you serve. Then you'll be ready to foot wash, and that starts with your spouse. You're not ready for ministry across the globe if you can't serve your spouse as Christ loved his church, willing to give his life for the church. That's what Ephesians chapter 5 models there, is that we, especially husbands, I'm talking to you right now, we're to be like Christ in how we serve our wives, right? It's not about being a dictator. It's not about having this helpmate that we can boss around and tell to just go wash the dishes. No, it's about how do we serve them above all else. That's what Christ did with his church. He modeled it. He demonstrated it. He spoke with gentleness. He, he elevated, lifted them up. He, he defended his church in their heart and their mind and physically. And he gave them hope and an eternal life. Yes, the model is a big one. The standard is high. But gentlemen, if we do this, watch your wife come alive. Watch her blossom before your eyes. And what we'll see is a woman exemplify Proverbs 31. And it'll just come out of her. It'll exude out of her because the, the alignment of the home is in proper order. Gentlemen, it starts with you. You see, your children are going to look to you. They won't understand the Abba Father of heaven if their relationship with you is broken. You have a responsibility to act like the Father to them. Yes, it's a big deal. And so once we get this right, when we put God as a proper focus before us, then we are ready for marriage. And, and this is, sometimes it's not cultivated and developed until we're already in marriage. I find that very few uh, situations exist out there in which the young men have already come into a relationship with a deep maturity and understanding of God's holy word. That's unfortunate. That, that says somewhere where we're falling apart here, failing in our culture, in our church discipleship and development of young men and women, preparing them for marriage to understand the sacrificial service that they must perform even to one another at the betrothal period even of a, of a year in which that might take place in the Jewish weddings. There's so much symbolism in that that we could really uh, learn from a great deal. But we must learn to walk with God. And, and even try to change our spouse that we've just committed our life to do uh, to, to this individual. This 
This is not our mission. Our mission is not to change them. Our our mission is to allow God to continue to transform us. And as we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see that if you are already in an unequally yoked relationship, even to the woman who is in a relationship and and married to a man who doesn't know the Lord, Peter encourages her and says that even without speaking a word, how your countenance can transform that person. That means that God is doing the work in you. So if, if your goal is to change that person, th- then you're you're missing the huge opportunity here where God is going to work in you first and foremost, right? It's before you can pull out the, the speck in their eye, let God work and remove that log from your own. So th- this is a, a key that we follow these instructions from Almighty God. So let me add here that until God brings the right person into your life, he will provide the strength to resist temptation, if you are seeking him to give to give you his very best, if you're seeking him to want his will, not your own, if you're seeking him, if you're knocking expectantly and waiting on the Lord and allowing peace to surpass understanding and being patient to be still and know that he is God, watch him work. He expects you to avoid listening to or looking at or being around anything that heightens that temptation. Avoid it. That's what we're told to do in Philippians chapter 4. We're to focus our minds in verse 8 on that which is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good reputation, of excellence, and worthy of praise. Why? Because we've got to get rid of all those toxic inputs, lest we produce a toxic output. And so if you're struggling with temptation, maybe you're single right now, desiring to be married, wait on the Lord. Allow him to change you. He may be working on you significantly right now because you're not ready for marriage. Or maybe he's setting you apart like he did with John the Baptist, even with the Apostle Paul and many others to say, I'm your first love. You have a mission before you, and it may not be in marriage. It may be wholly, fully dedicated work to Almighty God. And if it is marriage, be patient. God's working on you. He is working, and allow Him to work. You you need to consider marriage carefully. And if you choose to get married, stay married. Honor God with your marriage. That's where we're going to pick up next week in verses 10 to 16. We'll get into that even further. So I hope you've been encouraged today. If you want to re-listen to this broadcast or get any of the sermon notes or go into the details any further, please visit us at calvaryfountain.com. Again, this is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church uh, located on the south end of Colorado Springs. Services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. We would love to see you there. Brothers and sisters, God bless you.